as much as it feels selfish to say this, I'm I'm not going to pretend right now that I don't want all of this to be over right now. And I don't mean the podcast. I mean the pandemic and the quarantine and the lockdown and everything else like that right now. I'm 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 ready for it to be done. I I want it to feel like a, a test that we were trying to play and get through and that we've passed the test somehow. Um, you know, every couple of weeks, I think, when the state-designated state of emergency is about to end, I think you know maybe this was all just a test. And if you know if you know that phrase, like I know that phrase, you're probably familiar with with this old standard here. This is a test. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is only a test. And then that terrible sound would sound, and you'd have to listen to it for a minute or so. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't miss that. Um, but, you know, if you grew up in an era when everybody was trying to convince you that the world was literally about to end at any given point, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know, as a kid, you know, that sound was sort of terrifying, and eventually it became background noise to my life because even as a kid, I had a hard time believing that my elementary school was going to end up being bombed by the, you know, the Russians and that we would end up in a situation where my school desk was supposed to save me from a nuclear bomb. I learned that growing up in the 80s as a kid. And, and I, I learned that, you know, there are things out there that are going to try to kill you. Uh, but they, some of them give you a fighting chance to escape. I mean, we can run away from hurricanes. We can run away from wildfires. Uh, but there are other things like nukes and earthquakes and, as it turns out, tornadoes that it takes a lot more serious work to escape. I will tell you this, that I grew up in Southwest Missouri, and once we all got to April, we started listening for the tornado sirens, and we had the plains of northern Oklahoma and southern Kansas to worry about. I was talking with my cousin RJ today, and we were talking about this one particular sound, and it's very local to where you know I came from. If you grew up where we did, when the weather was coming, you turned on a country station called KTTS, and it's like a very old station. It had been around since the 1940s, uh, one of the oldest FM stations around, and Bob Barker to give you some idea. Bob Barker worked there when he was a kid. Uh, anyway, if there was a tornado warning at any point, uh, there was this sound that came on and you'd have to hear it even in the middle of your songs and everything about once a minute. And this is, this is that sound. And I, nor RJ, can hear that sound today you know, decades after we were children without getting goosebumps. Regardless, we all became sort of conditioned to the idea that it was completely normal that a tornado might be coming in like five minutes to get us. But here's the thing, like I've lived in South Carolina now for more than two decades and not until this month have I taken shelter from a tornado in South Carolina. And this month I've done it twice. The last one stopped just a mile or two short of my house and my cousin's house just down the road. It's the first time in my life now between the pandemic and the tornadoes, it's the first time I've been sheltering in place for two different things I'm told that are trying to kill me. Um, so I've been calling this fatigue week. Um, this week, we all finally just let ourselves get tired, you know, tired of being home, tired of not going out for tacos, uh, tired of knowing that if the tornadoes don't end up getting us, the virus eventually will. I, I tell you, it would be very damned easy to feel sorry for myself right now and all the time if I didn't look out and know how many people were still out there afraid of dying. And I mean, get this. I have a friend who doesn't live too far from me here who lost her dad to the COVID virus. And a week later, a tornado dropped a tree on top of her mother's mother's house. Um, that's how tough people are having it right now. So understanding that I have it good, we're going to do another live episode tonight um, that hopefully will do some good. And if we're really, really lucky, might end up solving some mysteries. So one of those mysteries we're covering tonight comes from 1975. One comes from 1972. And there's one actually happening right now. And that one's going to be sort of hard to talk about. Um, that one has a $20,000 reward and it's currently tearing apart um, a friend of mine. So all of that's coming up tonight. And uh, given that he gets called in, um, and I hope it's going to work out, um, Leonard Brown Jr. is going to be on with us tonight. And after that, we have a very cool musician whose name is Elsie Branch, and he has a very fitting song and sort of a surprising connection to all this. And I'll be here. Um, I'm Brad Willis, and this is Murder, Etc. Live. <laughs>
So we're currently working to get uh, Leonard Brown Jr., uh, also known as LBJ, to me and his friends uh, back on here pretty soon. Um, so he's, he's working to get in and hopefully we can get that worked out. But I'm going to talk about the case about my friend just a little while. Um, ultimately, she's the reason I decided to do this show tonight because her family is going through hell right now and they need everybody's attention while literally every one of us is watching for something that's not that we're watching about what the next update is going to be for you know the ongoing pandemic right now my friend needs the attention the most and the entire world's just looking the other way and that's how cases ended up going up cold and as sad as it is you know sometimes you know these cases just get 100 percent forgotten you know, as I was doing the research for murder, et cetera, I found myself in a situation to where like murder after murder after murder, they weren't just going unsolved. You know, the vast majority of them fell just off the radar completely. And you'd have to work very, very hard to find any mention of them online right now. There's some mysteries that, you know, we'll never stop hearing about in, in our lives. You know, back where I grew up, there was a case when I was graduating from high school. It was the year I graduated high school. And three women, two of them who were my age, you know, just graduating high school themselves, just vanished off the place of, face of the earth, never been seen since. And you know, that case still gets a ton of publicity. But there are a lot of cases out there, uh, just too many to even start listing, that won't ever be solved because both the cops and the public forgot about them just a long time ago. And I, those are the cases that we're going to talk about tonight. You know, we're having a slight trouble getting Leonard Brown on tonight, but I think what I'm going to end up doing since uh, he's having a hard time is I'm going to bring him in in a different way. So if you give me just two seconds, I'm just going to have Leonard Brown call my phone. We'll patch him through like that. Give me just a couple of seconds. All right. I think right. we may have Leonard Brown with us here right now. Is that you there, Leonard? It's somebody. It's not the real Leonard Brown. It's a Leonard Brown. It's a thank you. Thank you for working this out with us. I really appreciate it. It's a yeah. I was having trouble with that. Yeah. Well, you know that's the way things go. Sometimes we get ourselves in situations to where we're trying to mess with new technology, and um, you know, last week we didn't even get on there until forty-five minutes after we were supposed to. So, you know, that's 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 live radio, and that's how we'll end up doing doing with it. But anyway, I was about to tell folks here that you know, over the course of doing this research, uh, you know there were several people who have been an integral part of the show who have ended up taking you know uh, taking upon themselves to look into a lot of these cases and one of them you know is is you uh, you know you know i call you lbj or uh, your dad i think calls you big calls you l um but uh you know you know how's your life been right now i mean what have you been doing since all this quarantine started well we've managed to continue to work through all of this unlike a lot of folks uh, we're fortunate in the security industry that you know, one way or another, we're considered essential. And uh, so therefore, we've continued to work. And in fact, uh, well, for about three weeks or so, a lot of people just didn't want me in their house, as you might, as you sure. might imagine. And, uh, and then as things kind of cooled down with the pandemic uh, news, uh, then that sort of went away. And currently, we've got more work to do than, um, than I've had in, in quite a while. So it's picked up uh, dramatically. Uh, for myself and my brother and others um, in our business. But we're doing well. We're doing quite well. Everybody's healthy, and uh, and I'm glad for it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people will want to know, um, how's the old man doing? The old man is uh, fine as frog's hair, as uh, <laughs> he would, as he would say. Uh, he's doing well. He's having to microwave his own breakfast every morning, and that is uh, – it's a terrible thing, uh, but uh, but he's doing really well. We talk. Uh, he's been my breakfast buddy, as you know, for probably ten or twelve years. It's kind of odd for him to have to put his own food in the microwave. He brews me a pot of coffee every morning, and he calls me and he says, "You're ready for coffee?" And I'll come over to his house and we'll sit down and we talk about the current events and the president, and we talk about stuff that used to happen and stuff that uh, went on, you know, related to the seventies and the podcast and things that you and I are interested in, and. Uh, uh, we solve all the world's problems in about an hour, and then and then I go on to work, and he stays and does whatever he does. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, honestly, the very first time I found you, I found you. You were sitting at breakfast with your dad. Did yeah. You, did you ever imagine that you know your life and your dad's life and my life and everybody else's life would be like it ended up being for the next you know last year? No, and in, in fact, you, you've heard me say before, uh, and forgive me for repeating myself for some folks, that I told my daddy for 35 years, we need to write a book. 
we really, really need to write a book. And he'd go, ah, nobody cares about all that old stuff, you know? And, uh, and I'd say, yeah, yeah, they will too. But then, uh, when, when you showed up on the scene, uh, you know, finally somebody with the wherewithal to actually put the whole big story together, uh, you know, that occurred and that made it a lot easier for us. So there we are sitting in the waffle house on a, on a Saturday morning with my daddy and my daughter. And my phone rings, and it's you. And uh, you say, uh, Mr. Brown, I'm, you know, you introduced yourself and what you were doing, and this this story on crime and corruption, police corruption and such in the 1970s in Greenville County. And you said to me, I understand from talking to a lot of folks that you know a lot about this. And I said, uh, well, Mr. Willis, you're looking for my daddy. <laughs> and uh, and you said, I, and your words were exactly, your exact words were, I'm sorry. Is he still living? And I said, <laughs> God, I, and I said, well, I said, well, hold the phone for a minute. Here he is right here. So <laughs> that's how you and I met. But to answer your question, no, I, I never imagined uh, where this would go. And neither did my father. He is still reeling uh, uh, and he's enjoying, I might say, his newfound notoriety. <laughs> <laughs> He, he thought nobody cared about this stuff anymore. I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, what, the, the following week after, you know, after I called you and found you at breakfast, uh, I ended up joining you and your dad for breakfast um, yes. uh, over off White Horse Road. And we sat there and I thought, you know, my, my kid had a ball game later that day and I thought I was going to go out. And we ended up sitting there for three hours and I, I couldn't I, I didn't want him to ever stop talking. And right. was, I mean, I'm sure that that happens a lot. But, you know, I want I want people to understand, like, how this next story that we're going to tell sort of started, because. When we were sitting at breakfast that morning, we, and we'd been sitting there for a long time, and he was talking about a guy, and and I'm not going to say what this guy's name is because there's still a lot of questions surrounding all of it, and the man in question actually still lives around here, so I'm not going to you know talk about the man specifically, but I, what I want to talk about is the case because when you know Big L's telling this story, uh, he starts talking about this murder that I had never ever heard of. It didn't seem relevant at all to the Frank Looper murders at the time, and he and it, that your dad wasn't trying to make it relevant. He was just it was sort of an aside, you know. It was an aside, it was another aside story. That that he was telling, but he remembered like the exact details of the story he heard as he did so well. Um, the one thing he couldn't remember was the victim's names. And yeah. So, you know, one night, uh, you know, this, the story was of a woman who had been dumped at the end of a racetrack. And so at breakfast, I didn't think much about it, but that weekend, the curiosity started getting the better of me. And I started trying to track down that story. And as you know, you know, I took a little bit of time, but I, I found this case that just had to be the one your dad was talking about and realized that case was still unsolved. And the week after, you know, we had breakfast, we sat down with your dad again, and we talked another three hours. And I asked him just to tell me what he had told me before. And he starts telling this story. And I'm going to play a little bit of sound from that discussion that we were recorded that morning. He starts telling the story about a man and a woman who are both in the middle of a couple of felonies and they're driving back to Greenville and it goes very badly. I don't know how I had a wreck. We run into something down there. One car accident with nobody else involved and it busted out the windshield. I think the windshield on the passenger side was broke. And he said they'd went down there to some girl who knew somebody had a bunch of guns, stole the guns out of somebody's house down in around Simpsonville somewhere, and they come up Woodruff Road and had a wreck. She's all bleeding for the, in the head, he said. She, he got her out there in the woods and took care of her, he said, and he left her there. And then he got thinking about it because he had that, somebody might have seen his car there. And he had the car pulled in over there in the Saul Street to his house. Yeah. So he got thinking about it. Somebody might know about it, and he went, he went down there and got her and took her way over to Greer and throwed her out at about that drag strip over there well that's what he told me about her face bleeding and everything that's what he said about her face bleeding and didn't know what to do with it couldn't call the damn ambulance and done got a little bunch of stolen guns in the car so what the hell am i gonna do the car was in the ditch he drug her out there in the bushes somewhere off the road finished her off he didn't say how he did it. he said he finished her off and then he 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 left and he got somebody to pull his car out that's what he said he said he later went back and took her over over the Greer near the drag strip. Yeah, and I ride down there and see the hell's a busted windshield. And so, I mean, the last thing he said there, and I think I'm going to probably have you explain this just a little bit, if you can remember. He says he drove over to, to look because this car was apparently right there um, to be seen, and he went over and actually saw it. Do you, you remember how he told that part of the story? Yeah, and uh, he had gotten word uh, that, uh, you know, to validate what he had been told about this uh, this murder, this incident, uh, Leonard, just drive on over there. You'll see that you'll see the guy's car sitting in the driveway right now with the you know wrecked and the window knocked out, the windshield knocked out, and he did. 
he went to check it out and drove by and, and sure enough there sits the car damaged and the and the windshield knocked out so it was all yeah. pretty you know i mean it was it was amazing how how much his story lined up with the other story that you know turned out to be the historical account of it right. over time you started to take a pretty serious interest in the case um, we haven't gone into a lot of detail about the rest of everything so you know um, i you know the woman's name was pamela legerholm vaughn um, yeah, that, Logger Home. Logger Home. Pamela Logger Home Vaughn. Tell VH, us what you know about VH. it. Well, uh, Pamela Vaughn, uh, you know, her body was found uh, in April of 1975. And as you've pointed out many times, 1975 was, was the year for these things. But she was found on a on a Sunday, uh, April the 20th, I believe it was. And But she was uh, thought to have been killed a, a couple of nights before that, as you heard my dad describing uh she was traveling with a, a gentleman and they went to rob someone down in the simpsonville area of some guns and they came back and on the way back i, I think the burglary didn't go well i don't know all the details of that but um, on the way back they wrecked they had a wreck he ran in the ditch on woodruff road in the vicinity of woodruff road in 85. Now, back then, I can tell you from being a Greenville native, there was nothing on Woodruff Road uh, in those days. It's hard to and, imagine uh, today. It is hard to imagine. Woods, fields, uh, a lot of the property there was general electric property because the GE had the big plant, the big turbine plant uh, on Garlington Road, and their property stretched all the way out to Woodruff Road at that time. But anyway, he, um, Ms. Vaughn was pretty badly injured in the in the wreck and uh, of course you heard the story i won't repeat all of that but he the driver decided that rather than to be caught there with this woman with him and these guns and all these things in the car he best finish her off so he dragged her out into the woods and and, and did just that and then later came back and uh, moved the body to a, another location out on the power line right away near the Greer drag strip. Now, that was inside Spartanburg County. The actual murder took place in Greenville County. Therefore, Spartanburg County deputies, uh, Spartanburg County Sheriff's Department was the agency that, that investigated it. When the body was found, uh, she had a, a broken nose. Um, she had suffered from pretty severe blunt trauma, lots of bruises and scrapes and abrasions and cuts. She had been strangled, but the cause of death was thought to be a, a knife wound. She had been stabbed in the chest with a large knife. The investigators at the time saw right then, it appeared to them that she had been murdered elsewhere and brought to that site which we know is is indeed uh, what happened. And that's the thing is like, you know, the, the official narrative that existed for years never really speaks about the, you know, some of the, the things that, you know, we've heard and the stories your dad told us. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it, her injuries match up very well with what your dad's story was. You know, if a person's face went into the windshield of a vehicle and uh, then later stabbed, you know, or taken care of, finished off, oh, yeah. else, it, you know, it fits. And that's well, why he, it was he so heard the, intriguing. He, he heard it from the horse's mouth, right. yeah, so to speak. Yeah. And it was that's why I think it made it so intriguing to both you and I. And I know that you know you spent a lot, you know while I was finishing up the rest of the podcast, you were working on some other things that we might go along with it. And I know that you reached out at one point to the Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office to just say, hey, you know, can I can I send you a freedom of information request about this? How did how did that conversation end up going? Yeah, you know, I did the the whole the thing with Freedom of Information Night request on that, asking for a copy of the police file so I could begin to look into it a little more now that we had some more detailed information on it. And um, they didn't say anything for about a month. And then when they finally did reply, that request was denied due to the case being an open openly investigated case it's it's they, they say it was an open case right now that seems to be sort of the mo um in situations like this to where yeah you know these are cases that i mean i'll tell you this like in I found this newspaper article in 2006 that Pamela Vaughn's mother had written, basically begging the public for information. So that was 14 yeah. years ago. She writes this, and you know, she tells the story that her daughter went out on a Friday night. They found her body yep. two days later on a Sunday. They found her shoes in one location and her purse in a different location, almost as if somebody had been driving along and throwing them out the window. And you know, the cops at one point believed the motive for the murder was robbery, and that she was grabbed, you know, in a different part of the county, um, over off Highway 14, and you know. 
even even when your dad told the story, I'm like, damn, that is a hell of a story, if true. Um, and but since, you know, again, it wasn't as if he was, you know, trying to make me go off and look into this story. It was just an aside that he was talking about. And it's a uh, that's I think that's what's made it so fascinating to me is that, you know, but for maybe just a lapse in communication, because I know that he said that he took that information to you know people at that time, you know, in 1975 and nothing was ever done about it. He did. He um, he took it to the authorities. When he, you know, talking about getting off on the sides with my daddy, you spend much time with my daddy, you'll be, you'll, you'll be chasing a lot of rabbit trails because he, <laughs> he, he'll send you off to, on one in a, in a New York minute. Uh, but yes, he did take that information when he got it to the authorities and uh, they, they did nothing with it. I can tell you for a fact that several people who could have done something about it knew about it. Um, interestingly enough, all these years later, you may remember that I ran across a newspaper article um, where our old friend Ivan Nachman was, inter- was interviewed, sure. and uh, even Ivan Nachman knew about it. He knew who the who the killer was, and 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 state doesn't name the person, but states uh, you know that he knows about it in a newspaper, Greenville News newspaper article, two, uh, 1977. Years later, I think, you know, for people like you and me and people who study cold cases in general, it's a it's a frustrating thing to have to deal with when like, you, like you had this information in your head and you know it was communicated then we can communicate it now. And, you know, whether, you know, so many years passing has ruined the opportunity to fix it. But um, but at the same time, you know, I I think that. If, if we do just get the information out again, as we have, then maybe somebody will hear it. You know, somebody hears this and they go on or they see it on Facebook or whatever else. You know, I am going to say that what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a phone number now so that people can call if they end up, you know, if somebody has information about it. And we'll also put all these details on our website as well. But if you do know anything about this one in particular, call the Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office. That number is 864-503-4509. And again, I'll put that on the website. And honestly, if you don't feel comfortable talking to law enforcement in any way. Um, you know, the Leonard Browns aren't hard to track down, nor am I. Call um, me. Yeah, I mean, just go to breakfast when the quarantine ends and you'll find them. Um, but you can also, you can you can write, write me um, at brad at murderetcpodcast.com. Or, you know, I have a number that's set up specifically for this. You can call me and leave me a message at 864-729-2441. And, you know, if, if anything, you know, and, you know, I'm sure that your dad would be happy to talk to Spartanburg County investigate investigators if they wanted to talk about it. Um, and he could be a lot more open than we could in this public forum right now. Sure. Yeah, of course. Three years before Pamela Vaughn's death, there was another murder that was going on that remains unsolved today. And this was one that popped up on my radar for a lot of different reasons, because it seemed like everybody that I was talking to about the Looper murders also wanted to mention this other case. People kept talking about Preacher Finley, Preacher Finley, Preacher Finley. And officially he was James F. Finley, but Leonard, everyone called him something else. They called him Duck. Duck. All right. So who was Duck Finley to Greenville County? Well, Duck Finley was a Baptist minister who served as pastor for a number of churches in, in our general area. And in 1967, he founded College Park Baptist Church uh, in the Berea community on Whitehorse Road, which is still there today. And he was the pastor of that church at the time that he was uh, attacked and killed in 1972, I believe it was. Yeah, that's correct. He was a well-liked individual. A lot of people liked him. Obviously, he he was a pastor of a fair, fairly good-sized congregation. He was a... Um, Real backslapping, joking kind of guy. Uh, he was known, however, to be a little flashy and flamboyant. He liked to wear nice watches and rings. He liked to brag about how much money he had. And other than, aside from being a minister, he was also a car dealer. He traded uh, primarily Cadillacs. He bought and sold Cadillacs. So he was reputed to have a a lot of cash around and was always said to have a lot of cash in the trunk of his car in case he came across a Cadillac that he wanted to buy. You know, people said these kinds of things about him. But he was a well-liked man. And, you know, a lot of the community was really upset when he was uh, killed. Well, talk about the circumstances of how he ended up getting killed. How did that happen? Well, he and his wife came home from church on a Sunday evening to find two masked men in their in their home, uh, two burgers, and apparently they surprised them. And the story is, is that, you know, they 
over a period of some time, I'm not sure how long these guys were there. There were two of them, according to Mrs. Finley. They beat him and tortured him and basically trying to get Preacher Finley to tell them where the big money was. And uh, in the process of all of that, they ended up shooting him. And they then took whatever they could get their hands on, and then they stole his car. They actually left in Preacher Finley's car. He ended up staying in the hospital in critical condition for about a month before he finally uh, succumbed to his wounds and and passed away. And he was uh, 64 years old when this happened. And, you know, again, it's a case that remained unsolved for years after that and remains unsolved today. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because after so many people had spoken about Preacher Finley and whatever, uh, you know, one day you start showing me this just large cache of cassette tapes that your dad had amassed (laughs) over the years that we came to call the Leonard Brown tapes. And you, you know, spent hours and hours and hours restoring those and transferring them from the nasty old analog to digital so I could use them on the podcast. And during this process, you know, you run across a tape that has a conversation that is specifically about this murder. And I'd like you to tell me, um, it's between a guy named Furman George and Larry Atkins. And before we get to Furman George, tell me about Larry Atkins and who he was to Greenville County. Well, Larry Atkins was another minister, and Larry was a pastor to church up in Marietta, and Larry was also a newspaper man. He published a small local newspaper. It went by various names, but during these days, it was it was known as the Mountain Monitor and later the Greenville County Monitor. Larry was a well-known guy. He was a, a good friend of my daddy's, and um, Larry was waging war, so to speak, in print against Sheriff Cash Williams and and the the corruption of the Greenville County Sheriff's Department, as well as other political figures at the time. So he had a, quite a few uh, political enemies, and he and my daddy were friends, and they exchanged information often uh, because they were both sort of on the same team, I guess you'd say, in uh, uh, you know, in those days. Um, but this tape was out of all the tapes. That, and by the way, I'm not finished with all those tapes yet. It's a it's a daunting task. But this particular recording, when I uncovered it and transferred it and listened to it for the first time, and my daddy heard it, he said, where the hell did that come from? And I, I, he didn't even know he had it. Wow. Because, because he did not record it. Larry Atkins recorded it. My daddy just had it uh, in his in his in the pile. And it is a conversation between Furman George and Larry Atkins. Furman called Larry to give him information. So before you you go on, uh, we're going to talk about who Furman George is here in just a second. But I want people to yep. hear the very beginning of this conversation. I, I believe I got enough proof on a man that he had uh, a the kill. I mean, I just wondered. Now, I tell you what, I, you can't go to Sheriff William about nothing. Because uh, if you do, I know a fellow went up there and told uh, about a man, something the man was doing, and he got back to the man for the, before the law ever got out there. Yeah, it happens that way sometimes. I mean, I just, uh, well, Sheriff William told me, said, uh, well, I said, I got 127 men here. said, I, I can't keep up with what all this is, what I think about. Uh, one of his lieutenants had the information in his desk, but uh, the lieutenant told the man, I know him, that all these men said, I can't keep up all of them, you know. But, uh, I think you got something on this other. I, I, I mean, I surely feel it too, you know. I mean, I, I feel sure it's enough to, to somebody look into so, you know, that's the beginning of that conversation. And, you know, what they're alluding to there is that, you know, at the time, Cash Williams uh, was the sheriff. And, you know, he and Larry Atkins were at each other's throats a good part of the time. And you know more about that than, you know, other than your dad, probably anybody in Greenville County. So explain to people what the relationship was between Cash Williams and Larry Atkins. Well, and, and I can say this shortly and succinctly. Cash Williams wanted Larry Atkins dead. Um, and attempted to have that done, uh, as as many people uh, know now. Larry was such a thorn in the sheriff's side uh, um, that, 
he was the number one thorn in the sheriff's side because he was constantly publishing bad information, uh, news about the sheriff's department and all the goings on. And people would call him just as in the case of Furman George. These people who had information would, because they could not reach out to law enforcement, often ended up calling people like Larry Atkins or like my daddy because there was nobody else to turn to. And um, so the sheriff uh, really, really despised Larry in particular and, and, and my daddy and a couple other folks, too. Yeah. So that's, you know, this is the reason that this Furman George ends up calling Larry Atkins. And um, yes. I'm going to let you talk about who the George family is, but I just want to talk about what the George family was. And, you know, I, I there was a lot of infighting among this, this family that had a ton of brothers. And I've always said that if the Hatfields and McCoys had just been one family, their, their last name would have been George, because that's the kind of feuds <laughs> that took place there. But, but um, so people understand the connection and why we're talking about this at all, about who the George family is. Who were they? Well, uh, they were a, a family in Greenville uh, that uh, had a variety of, of occupations up uh, Ballard George, as many people know, ran the, the alignment shop. He was the best front end alignment guy around, uh, but he was also uh, a fixer. He was also a go-to guy if uh, you needed something dirty done, something bad done. Furman George was one of his brothers, and they feuded constantly. Uh, Ballard even uh, attempted to hire uh, some folks, as you know, to uh, to kill his own brother, uh, sent him over there to shoot his house up at one point, and then later on tried to hire them to, to kill him. That's just, it's pretty bad between brothers when one <laughs> hires a hitman to, to kill him. Right, and that's that, uh, and that's how they went for so long, and that, yeah. that's why you know hearing this call, there were some surprises to it, but at the same time, you weren't necessarily surprised it was brother on brother because what you have here is basically Furman George talking about his brother Ballard, and so I'm going to play this next clip that goes on. A little, you know, it's another a minute and twenty seconds, but and there's a lot that gets talked about in just this minute, 20 seconds, because Furman just talks and talks and talks. But uh, in this, he starts talking about Ballard and all this jewelry that he suddenly came up with in these watches and all of this cash that you talked about that Preacher Finley had. So this is uh, that part of the call right there. My brother, who it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what, how it is, the way it is. Me. I, uh, I've been living right now about over a year. And uh, I mean, I, I thank you. The Orbit Fund's pretty bad. Uh -huh. I mean, I don't care if it's you, your brother, my brother, who it is. Right, right. But uh, I, from what information I got, now see, I didn't, uh, one of my brothers told me about this, what information he had on it, he told me about it, and I got to think about it, so it's enough, well, that's enough to me, somebody's the best kid. Uh-huh. Uh, he did have a diamond ring, he sent it off and got it changed, and he had a watch that he put in a bowl of coffee, and he, he wouldn't sell it to the boy, but when the boy died, he told him, said, I can't sell it to you, the boy tried to buy it up us, and uh, he said, I can't sell it to you, he said, some of these days I might be able to get that, well, the boy died, he, he went to the ceiling in Hempsville, North Carolina, he put it on the boy's arm, the front scheme home, and I believe that watch belongs to the preacher. Uh, so he's got two watches that are gone, a big one well, or big diamond ring was gone, and I estimated him out of money, which he had about $35 on him about three days before he killed him. I know that. Uh -huh. I find that much out, too. So, uh, well, somebody's moving more by another. There ain't the preacher had that much money. Right. Three days before he killed, he had $35 on him. And so, you know, that that confirms a lot of what you were talking about right there is that that was his reputation in town. And Furman there basically says, you know, my brother was running around with jewelry that could have been stolen from there. And he had watches that could have been stolen from there. And, you know, that was how that story began there. When you heard that the first time, what were your thoughts? <laughs> that I didn't doubt, uh, first of all, that uh, Ballard might have helped set it up. Uh, that wasn't a surprise at all. That was the kind of thing that uh, he was known to do back in those days, but it was pretty jaw-dropping to find this tape out of the blue that, uh, you know, with Furman George saying this about his brother. That's like a primary, because, a primary source from the era about all the stories that we've always heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it, I'm, here in a second, I'm going to play this, this other clip, but um, it's going to introduce somebody that we talked about in the podcast, and it's somebody that you know his reputation very well. Uh, mm -hmm. His name is Harold, but everyone called him Scar, Scar Taylor. Right. So for those yeah. people who didn't or don't remember from the podcast who Scar Taylor was, explain that to, to them. When Scar Taylor was killed in Columbia, 
uh, Pete Strom, the head of SLED, described him as the most dangerous person in South Carolina. I don't know how true that was, but Scar Taylor was a notorious criminal in the area. He, he was a gambler, always running card games and, and uh, gambling games of, of all kinds. Uh, he was known to uh, be a, a thief and a robber and a, and a killer. He was convicted of killing uh, a gentleman named Grice at the Good Fellowship Club on, on Pleasantburg. Always the most and, ironic name around. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of shootouts <laughs> occurred there. So he did time for that until his conviction was eventually overturned on a technicality where the judge apparently did not apprise the jury of of self-defense law concerning self-defense. So he eventually got off for that. Uh, that was a, a big deal. He was friends with uh, just about all of the notorious criminals in our area at uh, the time. I mean, you'll, you'll remember that in the podcast, Fast Eddie Williamson described Scar yep. Taylor as one of his best friends ever. Yep. Yep, sure did. And then Scar himself, you know, ran around with Eddie, ran around with uh, Kramer, our old friend Debbie Kidd, all of those folks. In fact, Debbie Kidd was his girlfriend at a time, at one time, and uh, he eventually uh, died by the sword. He was shot uh, in, I believe, in Columbia. Yeah. sometime later so that's how he ended up going out but in the meantime you know in between all that period there was this story that was going on and uh in this next clip and there's the talk about a lot going on in a conversation this is where it gets a little crazy because in this one Farman starts talking about how ballard just starts slipping off to new orleans for no good reason and about how he's buying cars for scar and that there's two guys from new orleans that were staying near duck finley's house and that ballard's also running stolen gun i mean there's a ton in this clip but um, if people listen closely they'll I think they can get the idea of what Furman's trying to say. See, my brother runs a wheel alignment shop over in, in the Union Beach. Uh -huh. What I understand, Duck, he used to carry cars out there. But this detective told me, he said, well, he said, I've always, I said, we always plead if there's a car dealer mixed up in that or either New Orleans. My brother went out there, he stayed out there a few days, come back. Went a few days, he went back again. Nothing. A guy called Harold Taylor, Star Taylor. You've heard of him, I know. Yeah. Getting rough in this town. My brother bought him a, bought him two automobiles. I mean, I got proof of this now. Malcolm Carden knows that. He bought one off Malcolm. And he was Harold Taylor. And what, uh, after Harold went to the pen for killing that man, he got 10, 15 years, and they got him appeal trial. He come back out, and, and Malcolm told me this himself. Now, Malcolm said, Why, after your brother, uh, why did he buy that crooked ranch select car? Two cars. He bought one off me. He went down far off road and bought another and off another man. That's got back out the pen. One of my brother used to work over there. He told me one day I brought it up. He said, Did you know something? You know, there were two men over there that stayed over there around Ballard. That's my brother I'm talking about. Talking at the shop. Said, you know, two men stayed around over there for several days, had gun holsters in under their arm. and said, One of them uh, left and went to New Orleans. That's why my other brother told me that. Actually, I got, uh, actually, I brought it up, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, he come back talking about it, and he brought that up by that guy going back to New Orleans, see. And he was from New Orleans. Two men had got an apartment, first apartment over close to Duck. And uh, when Duck was killed, they get an apartment up. And they know that the men was from New Orleans. Uh -huh. I mean, the law enforcement knows that here in Greenville. I mean, I ain't talking to Debbie. Uh -huh. But like I said before, you can't say nothing there. Right. And uh, so they know that the, the people that are down to kill it were from New Orleans, and they know somebody said it up here in Greenville, but they don't know who said it up there. Uh -huh. Another thing, if, I know a brother of mine buys anything. He's had this uh, added up there with all kinds of guns up there. And uh, he buys anything and everything. You, don't care, you know how hard it is you buy it in half. Again, no love lost between Furman and Ballard. And, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that Ballard had been accused of arranging murders or beatdowns uh, in the past. And I know one of them was pretty close to you, but there uh, there were there were others as well. I mean, the, the one the most famous one from the podcast was that uh, he allegedly um, and was eventually convicted for being associated with the murder of Raymond Bugs Hassey on where the body was dumped on Paris Mountain. But um, I know that there was at least one other situation that we're aware of. Could you tell people and just remind them what that is? 
Ballard and his nephew Billy George were Charles McCarter, who had who was a plumbing contractor by trade, but had gotten into the bail bond business. He was a bail bondsman, and he was very tight with Cash Williams. And Cash Williams was often at his home. That's where he ran. That's where McCarter ran the bail bonds business from. But Charles McCarter attempted to get. Ballard and Billy George to give Leonard Brown an ass whooping, and um, and so we have uh, my dad has a number of recordings related to that. Uh, it turns out that Billy George was actually pretty good friends with Big L. Uh, he had rented a trailer from my daddy for a number of years, and my daddy was his landlord, so and he knew him and, and liked him. They uh, Billy agreed to, with, to cooperate with my daddy, and they ended up uh, making a number of recordings of conversations between Billy and Ballard and Billy and Ballard and Charles McCarter and so on. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, a lot going on back then, and I, you know, I... I want to play by the way, Brad, yeah. I just thought that uh, when uh, when they ask uh, when when uh, Billy asked his uncle Ballard, what do they have against Leonard? Um, the reply was he's been up there messing around with that preacher. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. He's up there with Larry Atkins. <laughs> Larry Atkins. <laughs> exactly. Right. It always comes back. You know, there, it's all there's this big circle that just keeps happening. All right. I want to play one more clip um, and we'll talk about it a little more. And then I want to move on to some conversations I had with a retired FBI agent, Tom Donahue. But here's here's this um, last clip from that conversation. I mean, he's my brother and don't mean no harm, but uh, he'd make a dollar any way he can make it. I mean, that's the kind of fella. He don't care who it hurts. Uh, nothing about it. So, you know, I, I had listened to that back when you when you gave it to me the first time last year. And I think I actually missed part of that conversation when I heard it the first time or it didn't ring a bell for me because when I listen to it again today, I hear them start talking about this drug company getting broken into. And it just mm -hmm. throws me all the way back to the world of Table Rock and everything else that's going on back then. I, I, I didn't expect to hear that this time. So as I was saying before, when I started this entire process, 
in investigating the Looper murders, I was talking to an old deputy from back in the day, and he again brings up Duck Finley without me having you know any knowledge of what's going on. And one of the things he said in it, uh, number one, shocked me when he said it, but he starts talking about how the robbers at the time used a soldering iron on the preacher. Um, and I've never heard that anywhere else, but that was what he said. So I filed that note like back in a way. I didn't think too much about it until later when I was interviewing Tom Donahue, the retired FBI agent. And he was telling me about a story that was a completely different case, it had nothing to do with Preacher Finley or Looper. But all of a sudden he starts talking about criminals using a soldering iron on a victim. And obviously my, my brain just picks back up. And this is that small part of that conversation. When you started telling the soldering iron story, story uh, this isn't anything I've ever read anywhere, but I did talk to a local, uh, former local um, deputy here who told a very similar story, but it didn't have to deal with the coins. It had to do with a guy, a preacher who lived over off Whitehorse Road, last name Finley. Um, and, yeah, do, do you remember that case? Because that, that's, I've heard that story pop up two or three times. And every time I'm asking about particular people, they bring up Finley. Um, and but it's weird for that to keep coming up. So if there's anything that you know about it, because I, no, I, I, I know I remember the case. Yeah. Finley was. If there's anything that you know about it, because no, I, I know I remember the case. Uh, Finley was uh, a local uh, minister or something, and there was an awful lot went on about that. I know we didn't have any part of the investigation, right. but there were some people try to pin it on Eddie. And, and I'm trying to remember who else, but it was never solved. And then there was some question about the preacher as far as his connection with some of the principles. So, you know, a couple of things to mention there. Um, the, the first one was, and I always tried to make an attempt to do this during the podcast. When we interviewed Tom Donahue, uh, he was recovering from uh, surgery and he had had a tracheotomy. And so his voice was a little tough. And, you know, I, I, he, I, I can't tell you how tough that man is. He's absolutely tough as nails and was able to sit through a very long interview and, and, and frankly, probably would have gone for a lot longer. So um, I commend him. Uh, he was very helpful through all that. But one thing he mentioned there, and Leonard, I'm, I'm sure you heard it too, he says that tried to pin that on Eddie. And he's obviously talking about Fast Eddie Williamson. And, you know, you've you've heard, I mean, he's not the first person to say that, right? No, he's not. Uh, that's been that's been brought up a number of times by a lot of people. It was almost as if everybody knew it, but nobody really wanted to say it for a lot of years. And I, I can't tell you how many people told it to me. I mean, it was to the point to where, you know, I, I was always, I mean, I never wanted to, I'll just say it. I was, I never wanted to piss fast Eddie Williamson off, but so many people had said it. And even Tom brought it up. And I will I will tell you that Tom Donahue did not believe that Eddie had anything to do with Preacher Finley's murder. He said that specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there are still people today who will with conviction tell you that Eddie did it. And so at one point, and this is before, you know, Eddie and I got on the phone, we were changing, exchanging a lot of emails. And I, I said, listen, I, you know, there's no way I can prove or disprove what everybody's saying. And it's still an open case. So I can't get my hands on the files to even see what they investigated. But but I did. I finally just went to Eddie and I said, "Listen, I have to address this because if I don't, it's it's I, I'm not doing my job." And so I have you know an email from him that I went back and looked at today to where I had asked him to speak on the record about it, and he you know wrote the words on the record above it. I want to read you just briefly what he said you know in this email. So this is him word for word. He said, "People said I did it, but they are 100% incorrect. Believe this: if there had been any evidence that I had, Billy Wilkins, the solicitor of Greenville County, then would have prosecuted me until I was convicted. But he knows there was no evidence. The people were only trying to free themselves." I might add, I would have done the same if I'd been in their position. So I hold no hard feelings against them for it. There are no rules in love and war, and that was war at that time, which is a hell of a thing to say, but, you know, I, I unequivocal denial. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, Leonard, uh, you know, we know this case remains open today, you know, and we are now almost, what, 50 years away from that case? Yeah. Um, you know, you still live over in the community where, you know, you're, you know your dad lives there. You, you, you live and work around there. Do people still talk about this, or is this one of those cases that's just been completely swept away? A lot of people talk about it. The common man talks about it. As far as I know, law enforcement doesn't talk about it much. Um, uh, in fact, it came up in conversation with with uh, my first cousin just a few weeks ago, and he had forgotten all about it, and he remembered it as a child. And he said to me, the only time I ever saw my dad cry was when was when Preacher Finley got killed. Uh, so, so it obviously had a, a, a profound effect on a lot of people, uh, you know, in the community, and and then the fact that it never got solved, uh, you know, even more so. 
Uh, so yeah, it's a big deal, and people still talk about it from time to time. But it's uh, you know we've sort of renewed interest in it here lately right. uh, through your your work with the podcast. Of course. And this is this is a Greenville County case, correct? It is. Yeah. It is. So, um, and you know, we have, we have a new sheriff in now, um, with, uh, the Greenville County Sheriff's Office, Johnny Mac Brown, after serving as interim sheriff during, uh, Will Lewis's, um, suspension and eventual termination, um, is now gone after a special election and Hobart Lewis is now our sheriff. And, but I know that, you know, they're actively working cold cases. They're working the, the Mr. Rex case that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, Leonard, you know, since we got started and you and I have become really good friends during all this. And yep. so we talk a lot and i one of the reasons we get along so well is that you have the same kind of curiosity about these old mysteries as I do. Do you recognize as I do that like, we're not, we're only talking about a couple of them, right? Because there's a lot out there that we could start talking about that people have literally never heard of that are active cold cases, right? Oh, that's right. There's this, uh, we're just, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. There's so many of them out there that we could look into. Uh, who's got time for all of this? I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, just looking into the three or four that I'm interested in, uh, uh, you know, it takes an unbelievable amount of time. And then you get so many of these folks are dead now <laughs> and, right. and, uh, and memories have faded. I mean, even in dealing with my daddy, uh, you know, there are days when he can blab his head off about stuff. And then, and then, you know, his, he, let's face it, he's 81 years old and he can't remember all the details that he remembered 20 years ago. And now I've have the fortune of having heard these stories for many, many years. I mean, almost ad nauseum, you know, right. that I didn't even want to hear them anymore when I was a teenager. But uh, so I retained some of that. And then, of course, in his case, we have a, a, just a heap of documents and the recordings and all these things that he managed to keep. Um, and they're in dusty old boxes in his basement. And uh, some of the important ones were in the climate controlled environment of his sock drawer for 40 <laughs> years. But um, but uh, but I'm you know, I'm, we're fortunate that that he has those things but in most cases you know you don't have it but yeah we could there's a lot of them we could pursue if, if we had the time and the resources if you want to talk about fortunate um that's me and frankly all the listeners both for you and your father you guys did so much to help move the looper investigation and wakefield investigation forward and and make this story really come alive so i, I just want to tell you how much I, I value you uh both as a contributor and a collaborator but as a friend you've you've done a, a lot for me and i really thank you for it well, I feel the same way about you and your work uh, as well. So the feelings mutual, brother. Thank you very much. Uh, and hopefully we can uh, have that whiskey we keep talking about once this quarantine is done. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks for being on with me tonight. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Take care, Leonard. Bye-bye. So that was Leonard Brown Jr. Um, he's a friend of mine now, and uh, I really enjoy working with him. And he and his dad still have a lot of great stories. And Leonard is, uh, he's actively working on a few stories that, you know, honestly could be their own podcast. And I've told both Leonard and Andy both, they they need their own podcast. And I, I, I hope that they uh, get around to doing it after we all finish up all the day job work we have to do to make some money. But um, one last thing here, just about the Duck Finley case, given it's old, it's almost 50 years old, but there's still a few people around that might know about it. So if you know anybody or if you've even hold an, heard an old story that might be able to help the investigators now, you can call Greenville County Crime Stoppers. That number is 864-23 and then the word crime. 23 crime. Or just just as earlier, feel free to contact me if you don't feel comfortable talking to law enforcement. Finally tonight, I mentioned this at the top of the show, and I, I'm not going to let the night go by without talking about it. It's a case that it's pretty close because it actually involves a friend of mine. On the night of February 20th of this year, there was a young woman whose name is Julia Mann uh, who walked out of her house. It was around 11 p.m., and this was in Watkinsville, Georgia, which is in Oconee County, Georgia. Uh, it's not far from Athens, if you know where that is. No one has seen Julia Mann since. She's 17 years old. She's got blue eyes. She's 5'3", 100 pounds. She's got, you know, a few earrings in one ear. Uh, her mom is named Terry, and Terry was a fellow reporter at WYFF when I was there in Greenville, South Carolina, back in the early 2000s. Um, I stayed in, in town, and she's since moved over to Georgia, and she's not seen her daughter in 70 days. Terry's been conducting a daily vigil, just saturating the internet with photos of Julia. And she, still tonight, is wondering what happened. And Julia, again, is 17 years old. Uh, early on in the investigation, uh, the sheriff of Oconee County, Georgia, got on Facebook and created a video. And she, he spoke directly to Julia as if she were a runaway. And I want to play you the audio uh, from that video. 
Hi, my name's Scott Berry. I'm the sheriff here in Oconee County, Georgia. And this is a special message to for Julia Mann. Julia, you've been missing for about a week now. We'd really like to talk to you. You can call me anytime, 24 hours a day at 706-769-5665. And I'll have some questions for you. Make sure you're who you say you are. But we need to, we'd like to talk to you. We need to talk to you, Julia. Um, we want to make sure you're safe. You're not in trouble with me. You're not in trouble with the law. We just want to talk to you. Um, if you'd give us a call, if you don't want to talk to me, Julia, please call your mama, call your dad, call your grandparents, but reach out to someone you know and trust. And if you don't feel like there's anyone that, that meets that description, just call me. Let's just talk about this, Julia. And let's get you home. Let's make sure you're safe. And we'll we'll take excellent care of you, Julia. You don't know me. You've been here about three weeks and you haven't you haven't lived here long. But but believe me, Julia, I'll take good care of you. That's a hard video uh, to watch. Uh not for any other reason than if you are a parent and try to imagine the sheriff of your county sending out that video to your kid. That's um, it's something that's really hard to think about. Uh, that video and the investigations by that sheriff's department, uh, the Georgia State Police, the FBI even, have turned up nothing in now more than 70 days. And if Julia is you know, gone of her own free will, everyone admits it doesn't look like she intended to be. And or if, if she did intend to leave, she didn't intend to be gone for long because her mom, Terry, says almost nothing is missing from her closet, dresser or bathroom. She didn't pack as if she were going on a trip. She had little or no money, you know, maybe a couple of dollars, but no, no actual money. She left behind her debit card, her insurance card and a bunch of gift cards that had, you know, money to spend on them. She didn't have a vehicle. Um, she didn't even have a full driver's license. She had a learner's permit. She had a bike. She left it behind as well. She did take her phone and her computer with her, but she left the chargers at home. And since the night she disappeared, the phone and the computer haven't been powered on. Uh, whether they ran out of battery or they were just turned off, they've not been turned on, according to law enforcement. So Julia's mom says she was doing very well in school. Uh, just, you know, just that day, she'd organized her closet. Uh, she'd put together a desk that she was going to use. And then one night she just vanishes. Um, I'm a parent and I have a very hard time thinking about this. And I've, there've been days that I've tried not to think about it because I literally can't force myself to imagine what Terry, you know, who I worked very closely with for a while and the rest of her family is enduring right now. And more than that, I, I can't imagine right now, I like trying to advocate for your kid who is missing right now in this space and time where there is no space in the newspaper or there is no time on TV uh, because everything is about this ongoing pandemic. You know, try, you know, a, a parent who's even the best advocate cannot break through the noise that's happening now to say, please help me because the entire world feels like they need help right now. And this is one parent who needs help, you know, in, no, in a way she's never had to before. And at this point, there's, she can't even get anyone to listen because she can't, you know, as, as hard as she tries, it's, you can't break through that noise. And I'll tell you, it just, there's no other way to put it. It that's hell. That's just hell. Um, there's a $20,000 reward right now for Julia's safe return. And I really hope that reward has to get paid out someday. If you do have any information, if you have seen Julia, and I'm going to post a ton of pictures of her, um, if you know anything about this, if this reaches you by some other means, and all of a sudden you hear it from a friend and they say, I heard this podcast about this missing girl, I'm going to give you a couple of numbers and I'll post all these on the website sometime in the next 24 hours. Um, you can call the Oconee County uh, Georgia Sheriff's Office. That number is 706 769 
three nine four five. There's also a national group that you can call, and that number is one eight hundred. And this the words the lost one eight hundred the lost. Um, like I said, I'm going to put a whole bunch of pictures of Julia on the Murder Etc. Facebook page tonight. So you can start sharing those and get them out to as many people as you know. And if you can do anything to help at all, I, I, I you know, honestly, I'd personally appreciate it. So, and I, I know for a fact that uh, Terry would, would, would love you for it. Um, because right now, all of us, you know, especially Terry and her family, need some good news. Uh, this fatigue week is a real thing. And even the strongest among us need just a couple of rays of sunshine and a, a reason to smile, you know, for real. Uh, I, I actually enjoy, the, despite all the technical problems and whatever else, doing these live episodes of the podcast during the quarantine because it gives me a chance to to talk to people and communicate with people uh, about something that's not about the virus. Uh, but I, I would enjoy doing this a lot more if, frankly, if we could all just go out for a beer and talk about all this. Um, or... And here's a, uh, maybe not quite as smooth segue as I'd hope, but, you know, listen to, go, listen to go, somebody pl play some music. Um, this week I found out something that absolutely blew my mind. There is this great musician from here in the upstate of South Carolina. His name is L.C. Branch. And the man can play a guitar and his voice is one that I would absolutely kill to have. And he's also just a hell of a songwriter. What I didn't know is, and this is absolutely crazy, his grandpa was Larry Atkins. The, the man that you heard, the man who read the, the Mountain Monitor, who you heard in the phone call talking to Furman George earlier tonight. Um, that just blew my mind. So Elsie has this song that I'm going to play to close things out tonight. And I found it especially poignant. I was sitting with my wife the other night. We were listening to it. And uh, immediately that just became the song that I knew that I wanted to play for you tonight. Um, you know, with his permission, by the way. Uh, it's, it's poignant for the purposes of remembering Lieutenant Frank Looper, but frankly, just for thanking all of the heroes in our communities, whether they are uh, medical workers, they're first responders, law enforcement officers, teachers, uh, all the people who are just working there, right? businessmen who are working to, you know, get stay alive. Basically, everybody who's working their ass off right now to try to make sure we get through all this. Um, this song's called A Toast to Heroes, and I want you to raise your glass tonight and give a toast to them, too. And listen closely, because I think you'll hear some things in here that uh, might, might sound familiar to you, just about the, the people and heroes you know. And uh, until next time, thanks a lot for listening and being here tonight. <laughs> I saw Superman At the corner of the bar Drinking straight tequila And looking at his scars No one really knows the man, but everybody is his friend. Yeah. So he'll wake up tomorrow morning, do it all again. stool beside him he looked at me and said sometimes it ain't easy when you're blue and bleeding red but life was so much simpler then when the world was black and white, I'm just the pain of living. It's worse than kryptonite. If we sing friends in low places, longing in to face it. Talked about the 
times and days gone by. And we drank and toast the heroes. Then I watched him as the tears flow. I put my arm around him and ask him why. I ask him why. One more shot of whiskey before he said goodnight. When you stand for law and order, it's a hell of a lonely fight. City gets into rubble. And they look up at the sky They don't know this Superman Still free to fly We sing friends in low places Long in the empty faces Talk about the times and days gone by. Then we drink and toast the hero. And I watched him as the tears flow. I put my arm around him and ask him why. That we sang friends in low places. Long in the empty faces. Talk about the time. Then we drink and toast the hero, and I watched him as the tears flow. Put my arm around him and ask him why. Well, I saw Superman at the corner of the bar. Drinking straight tequila and looking at a scar.